The Manhattan Institute's Thomas W. Smith Fellow, Heather McDonald, is a tour de force. One of the most incisive voices of our time, her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the New Republic, and the New Criterion, among others. This week's episode comes on the heels of two terrific but worrisome essays from Heather entitled Classical Music Suicide Pact and Making Beethoven Woke. Both were published in City Journal. While we focus mainly on music, museums, art galleries, and cultural commentary on higher education and moral cowardice also feature. Happy listening. Heather McDonald, thanks so much for joining me on 27 Rouge. Thank you so much for having me on, Scott. I appreciate it. Uh, one thing I just want to start off with here before we get into some of the more interesting bits uh, is just a little bit about you and uh, your interest in opera. So just at a, uh, at a high level here, what, what is your favorite opera, Heather, and why? <laughs> Don Giovanni. Uh, I fell in love with it. It was my first real exposure to opera in college. Uh, there was still live broadcast going on on PBS, our public radio uh, TV station here in, in the United States, uh, the Great Performer Series. And I saw a performance in about 1977 when I was in college with James Morris as Don Giovanni and Joan Sutherland as Donna Anna. And... I fell head over heels in love. I, I was absolutely obsessed with the score, with the character. I went out and bought the Josef Krips recording uh, at a New Haven record store with one of the great baritones of all time, Cesare Sieppi. On the, on the record cover, he had a it was raising a, a wine glass in toast, and he had a, a dangling pearl earring. It was just the height of, of erotic, uh, sort of almost androgynous beauty and power. And uh, the music, the, pow- the, the sensual drive, the, the erotic yearning and, and conquest uh, just blew me away uh, and I really had not been an opera person at all up to that point I knew nothing about it I was very deeply involved in classical music but my parents both really reviled any kind of singing and so I, I had no exposure to leader or opera growing up but but this was a, a, a life changer and uh, but it, it's not as if it turned me immediately into an opera fanatic. I, I think I went still years uh, before I really started going to a lot of operas. That happened when I moved to New York in the 1990s and then started going to the Metropolitan Opera uh, regularly. And it had the advantage of being the last frontier for me of music that I didn't already know pretty thoroughly, the orchestral and piano repertoire and chamber music I, I knew pretty well and I'm always interested in works that I don't know so I'm still exploring and uh, but but Mozart to me remains the absolute apex of operatic expression and for that reason I no longer go to op- Mozart operas frankly I, <laughs> I am willing to cop to diminishing returns in music nobody else is but I'm going to be quite honest uh, my 20th exposure to Don Giovanni does not have the same thrill as my first five. And uh, I would rather preserve that musical experience uh, as, 
at a, as sublime a level as I can. So I've, I don't go seeking Mozart operas if, if I have no choice but to see when I will and, and gladly. But uh, right now I'm still looking for operas I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot a lot to unpack there. I, I think the, when you were describing the sort of the erotic nature uh, of uh, just, you know, looking at, at at this picture with the guy with the earring and the wine glass and whatnot, <laughs> I think to myself of being in a museum and, and looking at really good sculpture. I'm by by all means an, an amateur art critic, um, not not uh, sufficiently well versed in in any form of, of visual art, to be honest. But like you go to a museum and you sort of en- you engage in a kind of relationship almost with uh, a really good sculpture, a really good painting, and you have that experience where it can be moving in a way that literature can be moving or film can be moving. And opera is something that I have been exposed to a little bit, but not a lot. But hearing you describe this, I think I think I'll book book some tickets to the Sydney Opera House. Um, Please do, and and it's not just Don Giovanni. You know, if they don't, if they're not doing Don Giovanni, you've got Nozze di Figaro, Cosi Fan Tutte, the great trilogy of Mozart's operas by the librettist Da Ponte. Uh, but but basically, you know, the standards you you can't go wrong. And you know, it's interesting what you described, Scott, about your personal identification with art and the sense that you are being taken out of yourself, being given an experience that you would not have. And I think all art allows us to inhabit minds that are greater, more capacious, more more insightful than our own. It takes us out of our petty, narrow selves. Uh, and, and that's how the experience of art museums was written about for decades. I, I'm writing about this right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, William Hazlitt, one of the great 19th century critics, described his experience both with the British Museum, the National Gallery, and the Louvre, and, and it being really a temple of greatness. Now, however, that is just the opposite. Uh, I'm writing about the most extreme travesty I've come across yet of what I'm calling the betrayal of the guardians, Mm. uh, which is the fact of the people that have been given the great privilege of guarding our cultural inheritance and passing it on with love and gratitude have turned on uh, the, the greatness that it is their privilege to curate and of going around telling the world that that Tradition is racist, oppressive, whether it's in classical music or in art museums. There's a show now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art of a great 19th century, probably the greatest 19th century French sculptor, Jean-Baptiste Carpeau, uh, centered around a bust, an, an, an abolitionist bust, an anti-slavery bust of a black woman uh, still in chains with the most extraordinary expression of defiance, uh, you know, lack of comprehension, mm. just the, the, the emotions playing across her face, the, the uh, mobility of her pose is quite extraordinary. The Met has decided that this is a, a bus that stands for white oppression and that any kind of abolitionist gesture in art is, by definition, simply colonialist, and, and a way of suppressing blacks. It is extraordinary. Mm. So 
your experience of art is being now denied art museums who have turned themselves into anti-racist institutions and they're all about narratives. They're yeah. about foisting a, a hackneyed, formulaic, jargon-filled, academically uh, you know, influenced and parroted narrative about ubiquitous, unending uh, white supremacy down viewers' throats, and, and that's doing an extraordinary disservice to our civilization. Uh, I would tend to agree with pretty much <laughs> everything everything you just said. And it's, I mean, the, the really ironic part for me is that here you have an artist doing something good, you know, standing up against oppression, you know, embodying enlightenment values of human freedom and you know, John Locke incarnate. And yet that good deed cannot be, is somehow perverted for, for, you know, it's this really strange rendition of presentism. The same thing happened to Philip Guston. He was a Jewish uh, painter. If if you followed that saga, Um, I mean, that it was ridiculous. The guy was clearly caricaturing. Um, Anyway, you know, one thing I want to ask you, Heather, and I have written down on my little questions list here, is this is related to the 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 opera side of things, but we can relate it to the art museum as well. I wonder about the degree to which this self-flagellating denunciation and apology that is often put forth by institutions, whether they're museums or they are the academy. At my own alma mater, Princeton, it was pretty funny. Um, the the president, uh, Christopher Eisgruber, of who uh, I am no fan, uh, was so busy declaring that the school was systemically racist <laughs> that they got investigated by the Department of Education. Um, yeah. But but when you look at these self-flagellating denunciations of we are systemically racist, we need to do better, this whole gallery, this whole exhibit, this whole system is bad, or, you know, we, the, the whole system by which, the whole classical music operatic system is terrible, I wonder whether people actually believe what's <laughs> coming out of their mouth. Do you think that these apologies are genuine or... Well, I tend to believe that a lot of times, whether they believe it or not, is second to the fact that they feel that they have to do it. Right. Um, right. I mean, what, what, what we had an article on this in Quillot Logic uh, is um, uh, the good death, uh, something. The the lot it was it was called uh, good death, the logic of torture or something like that. About you know, don't apologize, don't apologize. But I see a lot of these sort of fake tongue in cheek apologies of people apologizing for things that they didn't do. Um, I mean, do you think that these apologies are genuine, Heather? Boy, that is such a, that is the mystery. I mean, one one looks at these and says, look around you, you know that Ice Gruber, uh, Princeton president, Peter Salovey, Yale, if you have your eyes open for 24 hours on your campus, you can see that far from being racist, every single faculty search on your campus is one long cri de coeur to try to find qualified or, or remotely qualified 
underrepresented minorities to hire, you know that your faculty is not racist. If you think they're racist, name some names. Who's discriminating against black students? Fact is nobody. And yet they go around spewing out these formulaic bromides about racism. And one does wonder what is in their head. And I, I tend to think uh, that they do believe it. I think that there is a desire so great to be on the virtuous side of history. Uh, and we do know that, and, you know, Quillette covers problems of, of psychology and cognition all the time, that human beings are quite capable of denying the evidence right in front of their eyes mm. in favor of uh, received notions, in favor of, of self-inflating uh, propositions that elevate their own status. So, uh, you know, it may be like an instantaneous switch between uh, a state of empirical reasonableness and then just going into the other side of actually believing this stuff. Because otherwise, I would think that the cognitive dissonance would be unbearable. And, and these people are simply too consistent in uh, in their rhetoric to think that it's all a pose. And I don't know which is worse, uh, being absolutely cynical and being willing to sell out your institution. I mean, this is why I don't, I don't understand why there are not faculty uprisings against these <laughs> preening uh, college presidents who, when they are saying that this is an institution characterized by systemic racism. And it's not just Princeton's Ice Gruber. It's not just Yale Salovey. It's at Middlebury. It's at Amherst. It's at every single. It's at UC, University of California, San Diego, uh, Berkeley, everywhere. It is everywhere. Uh, when those college presidents say we are systemically racist, they are implicitly saying that their faculty are racist. And I don't understand why the faculty put up with it, but they are absolutely terrified. Uh, and, uh, and the department chairs that make the same claim are even closer to the allegedly racist faculty that, well, the reason that, you know, you've, you've had three male finalists uh, in your search for the, an electrical engineer must be because, and they're white, uh, must be because you're, you, my engineering faculty, are a bunch of, of racists. And the faculty just sit there, put up with it. It's really pathetic. It's, these are a bunch of conformist cowards, and they are, they are damaging the possibility of keeping this civilization going because you are discouraging people from either learning about art or in the case of STEM, I've I'm, you know, been writing about this as well. A lot of people are, are saying, look at, I'm a, I'm a white male or I'm an Asian male. The odds are against me. I'm going to go do, you know, a hedge fund or something. Uh, and so it's a, it's a very, very pernicious trend. Uh, and somebody with, authority has to stand up and say we're stopping this fiction that white supremacy defines our world today mm. yeah I, I, there's there, there's a lot there i think one one thing i'm always interested in is the degree to which i mean you talk about 
conformity. I think you're right in that a lot of these people, Christopher Eisgruber being first among them, do actually drink the Kool-Aid and convince themselves of their own sanctimonious rhetoric where even if there is, it, th th there has to be a level of, as, as you said before, cognitive dissonance reduction. I mean, down, down, trickling down to the department head level because if there weren't, I mean, if there weren't, that's that's the really. I mean, both sides are scary. Um, that you know, if someone can convince themselves of right. delusions, that's scary. But what's even worse is that when someone, and you know, I think to the example of the you know the Soviet Union or whatever, of thousands of people marching in lockstep, you know, trotting out phrases that they don't actually believe. Um, I you know, I think what's worse is when when people know what they're saying is false but they say it anyway because they think that they have to sorry it, it looks like you were going to say something no i i just think that's a, a an absolutely apt comparison and uh one wonders every day how do you pull the emergency cord and when do you do it and say all signs point towards soviet union propaganda. I mean, we really are living a whole set of lies, just patent fictions. Again, to go back to the universities, it's not just uh, faculty hiring. They know that they, in admissions, for student admissions, they have massive racial preferences, that black and Hispanic students are being admitted with test scores and GPAs that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by white and Asian students. They, they know that, and yet, you know, if an Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania Law School gets up and says, uh, you know, in, in my history of teaching here, I have not had uh, black students at the top of my class thanks to racial preferences and what's known as mismatch theory that uh, Richard Sander and Stuart Taylor have written about, her dean accuses her of racism without providing the data to rebut her, you know, if, if she's racist, if she's lying, give us the evidence. Uh, and of course, they never do. And and it's the same in, in the area of criminal law or hate crimes. We're all pretending that, uh, and I wrote, a, I wrote a piece about this for Quillette, that white supremacists are the, are the perpetrators of hate crimes against Asians. The video speaks for itself. It's blacks that are going around beating up Frail elderly Asians in San Francisco and and New York and elsewhere in Los Angeles, the data tell us that blacks commit hate crimes at twice the rate nationally in the United States as whites. Uh, in New York, it's 2.43 times higher black committing hate crimes than whites. Uh, we're living the fiction that white supremacists in the United States are the source of political violence and domestic terrorism after having lived through a year and a half of Black Lives Matter riots that, that destroyed billions of dollars of property that, that put entrepreneurs out of business, small businesses, black business owners in tears, you know, how am I supposed to rebuild? You've torched my building. And yet we're, we're the, we have the federal government in the United States dedicated to this lie that white supremacy is the threat, creating an 
an amazing department of misinformation, which yeah. has now been disbanded temporarily, but you better believe it's going to be reconstituted at some point. So it is, you're, it is very, very worrisome, and one can only hope that totalitarianism is somehow just not in the United States' DNA, but we're certainly dismantling our concept of the First Amendment uh, replacing it with this preposterous idea of hate speech causing physical harm to women and minorities. It's pathetic. We're a bunch of crybaby losers. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, I think, you know, it's, it's like a large exercise of, of play pretend um, right. is what it is. It's, uh, yes. It's theater. Um, yeah, not not the enjoyable kind. It's sort of like a UNESCO play or something. And then you think, yeah. oh, wait a minute. This is uh, this is the United States. Yeah, um, we can't we can't leave after the curtain falls. I know it's it's it, it, it then it gets worse and worse. Um, I think uh, I don't know. There's there's a lot. This, this will be my last question on the university thing. And then in the, in the back half of the interview, I want to get into some opera specific questions. But um, I just want to say on the on the record, on the subject of uh, Amy Wax, I was initially quite sympathetic to what was happening with her. Now, I think there are valid questions to be asked, um, but that's the subject of, of, of a different conversation. Um, on, on, on the subject of the STEM versus... Well, uh, let me just respond. I mean, she, yeah. she, she's, she's absolutely fearless, and she does not pull her punches. She speaks the truth as she sees it. And that is the purpose of a university. And the purpose of free speech is if you disagree with what somebody says, you go into the marketplace of ideas. You battle it out. And, you know, Frederick Douglass understood that free speech is the most powerful tool that minorities have against collective state power. So uh, I would just say that Amy Wax is practically unique in her commitment to her understanding of the world, and uh, and people should simply rebut her facts, which they do not seem willing to do. So, but let's leave that aside. Sure. Okay. And and agreed. <laughs> just just to say, um, but one 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 thing that you brought up, which is really interesting, was that kids don't want to go into the arts anymore. Don't want to go into the humanities because. Um, well, you know, they, they'd rather just go off and work at some hedge fund. I, I wrote about this. I wrote an article for Quillette called the, the Liars Club, looking back, looking back on Princeton about how I saw a lot of my peers basically just trotting themselves off into one of three industries, investment banking, consulting, or tech, and how this is a very common thing within uh, Ivy League schools. Um, and it was really, uh, I guess, strange to look back on. You think that you're taking well, – frankly, I don't – by any measure, think that my classmates or I were the best and the brightest to to bastardize David Halberstam. But you're taking what should be the you know the best and the brightest, and then trotting them off into three one of three industries. That, that's sort of a separate thing. I won't go off rambling. What was the connection you made, Heather, between the way universities function now and kids piping themselves off into finance? Could you elaborate a bit on that? Well, I was referring to STEM, uh, and I've just finished a piece for City Journal on what's going on in the medical profession and medical education. And uh, in it, I discuss 
white male students and and even white male faculty who are not putting themselves forward or the, the white male students for instance one guy worked in a cancer lab and he was the best student he was a, a Yale uh, molecular biology and biochemistry uh, bachelor of science major and he was the best uh, lab technician that the head of this cancer lab had uh, and he applied to medical schools. Uh, the the faculty supervisor was at that point at Northwestern, and he recommended him to the dean of Northwestern Medical School. He didn't even get a, an interview. He was admitted to only one medical school. He had extremely high MCATs, that's the standardized test for mm -hmm. medical admissions, uh, and, and a high GPA. And and he barely squeaked into a medical school. And so what I was referring to is uh, students that are, say, uh, undergraduates in STEM are seeing what's going on, which is uh, a absolute across-the-board discrimination against white and Asian males in medicine. Uh, everybody is – it's the usual thing. Everybody's twisting himself into a knot to find – black faculty to hire black you know editors heads of institutions and so people are saying i'm i'm not going forward with this uh and i've been told that when ucla the the dean of medicine opened up and there were highly qualified candidates who didn't even put their names forward because they didn't have the proper uh demographic characteristics as for the arts uh and classical music what worries me the most there is not so much well yes i mean you're you're also going to have people that are not going forward because again you're not going to get funded i know classical music organizations now that are run by say a non-american a russian woman but she can't get funding if if you do not have your if you don't rewrite your entire mission statement to be all about anti-racism or if you don't have black members on your board or in your staff if you're a small uh, early music organization this is you know uh, groups that are playing renaissance and baroque music trying to recreate how that music was performed when initially uh, and this is a very elite uh, rarefied subspecialty Blacks have only started going into early music very recently. But if you don't have black musicians and blacks in your staff and blacks on your board, you are not getting funded. And so what bothers me is that students that might possibly at one time have said, okay, I've grown up listening to rock music, but I will give Beethoven or Bach or Chopin a try. I will keep my ears open to a, at this point, extremely alien musical idiom that is almost absent entirely now from our circumambient culture, but I'll listen to it. Instead, the only message that they're getting from the very guardians of this tradition <laughs> is that it is defined exclusively by white supremacy. And so you're giving young students an excuse to say, oh, you know, I'm not going to listen to that. Why should I, you know, and be part participants in this oppressive tradition? 
the, the, the reducing of composers as varied as, as Handel, as Couperin, as Scarlatti, as Dvorak, as Janacek, Prokofiev, Stravinsky, to say, here's what's relevant about them. They're all white males, and therefore they all go in the same basket, is preposterous. Every one of those musicians have completely unique voices, and yet you have the League of American Orchestras, you have heads of music schools saying, the relevant characteristic of my tradition is its whiteness and its maleness. Yeah, it's extremely reductionist, and it's not just unfair... Heather, to uh, white students, I think, as, as you pointed out, it's grossly unfair to, to young black burgeoning musicians because no matter how good they are and how hard they work, for the rest of their careers and the rest of their lives, there'll be a little asterisk behind their name. And no matter you right. know how well they perform and how good people will always say, oh well, you, you know you you only got into this academy because uh, because of you know your the pigmentation, you only this or that, and so it's it's not really fair to to black students either. And I would think that young burgeoning black musicians would have the same reaction to as the white students of saying, well, I don't want to go into an industry where people are gonna you know, always say, well, you only just got this because. And so you're stripping the classical music of both white and black students. And it's like, it's just totally, a lot of these um, adopted policies, and you've written about this, obviously, are 100% self-defeating. You're not addressing the root cause of an issue. You're making up, uh, you're, you're, creating an imaginary issue that doesn't exist in the first place and then applying solution it's like you have a a wound right and you put the band-aid up on unblemished parts of your skin it's like there there was no wound there to to begin with um but just uh, go ahead yeah um i there are Many blacks who do acknowledge the stigma of racial preferences, but there are also many who still say that the reality is to be black today, you have to be three times as good as to be white. Or the, and, and also, you know, your, your hypothesis was, well, if you go forward in a, in, a, in a system that is now characterized by ubiquitous and vast racial preferences, people will say – There'll be an asterisk next to your name, or they'll say the only reason you're here, maybe, uh, is not because you were the best, but because you were the best black, which is a, a, an idea that a Yale law professor, Stephen Carter, wrote about in the 1990s in a book called Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby. And he quite honestly confronted that problem. Uh, but many people do not, and, and it, you cannot say that publicly. If you do, raise any doubts about somebody's credentials that, well, how do we know that that this was a merit hire and not a diversity hire? Uh, that's, that's a suicidal statement. So I, I, um, I don't think that the fear of being seen as a diversity hire or a preference hire is necessarily that discouraging to people. I think what is 
worse is to send the message that you will be discriminated against in this profession, which is, again, as you say, we are living a lie. Uh, Every single symphony orchestra now is programming putting black compositions, whether Florence Price and, or, the, or the equally mediocre Chevalier, the Joseph de Bologna on the, on the program, or contemporary black composers. Uh, and they are doing everything they possibly can, short of tearing down the audition screen, to uh, hire black musicians. And certainly in, in uh, soloists, where you're not auditioning behind a screen, uh, they're also getting hired right and left. So the idea that classical music is a, is a racist organization today is another one of these massive lies that people are going around uh, promoting to the detriment of our civilization. I guess just to get into a, a bit of humor here, could you describe the whole um, Fidelio debacle to us what i mean just succinctly um so i mean because i don't think a lot of people necessarily appreciate the ridiculousness of um of the whole of the whole thing so could you describe what what happened here well there were two issues i wrote about the fidelio black lives matter fidelio and then also the uh beethoven's ode to joy rewriting so uh, Fidelio was uh, is a Beethoven's only opera, uh, very much of Enlightenment opera about freedom. Uh, it's about a, a woman that goes undercover in a prison as a boy, uh, prison guard or prison assistant to try and free her husband who's being held in a uh, prison without any kind of due process by a despotic Spanish uh, ruler and uh, she manages to finally free him and it's Beethoven's it's heart-wrenching because Beethoven was uh, single all his life had difficulty connecting with people and certainly with his deafness made it even harder to communicate but this is an opera not just about freedom and the human spirit, but also a pay-on to marital love and, and uh, fidelity. Uh, so the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is not an, um, an opera house, put on a Black Lives Matter version of Fidelio that reset it in a contemporary supermax prison uh, with a alleged Black Lives Matter activist who had been thrown into prison because he was investigating corruption in the prison uh, criminal justice system and he was writing his PhD on the 13th Amendment. Uh, and so they rewrote all, all of the spoken libretto to have just completely irrelevant <laughs> comments about, about you know, uh, Blacks being gunned down on a daily basis by the police, and uh, I mean, it was it had nothing to do really, except for a prison <laughs> narrative uh, about the 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 actual opera. And of course, we had to get in some some uh, gender bending as well. <laughs> uh, this time, it wasn't the the wife was not undercover as a uh, 
male prison assistant. She was simply undercover as a female prison assistant. So one of the secondary love interests in the opera is now a lesbian love interest rather than a heterosexual one. And, and we really suspended our disbelief because, and all, all the singers uh, were black except for the, of course, the, uh, the Spanish despot was still a white mm. guy, of course. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the, the biggest uh, amazing kind of uh, get this suspension of disbelief was that the father, the black prison guard who was the father of a, uh, another woman who worked in the prison who was a lesbian, he was encouraging his daughter to go after this new female who just showed up and you know here's a let's just be honest here uh one of the groups in american society with some of the highest levels of lingering disapproval for homosexuality is blacks uh the rate of anti-gay hate crimes is much higher there so you know this was again completely counterfactual but then you also had at soon uh around that time uh, the conductor of the Baltimore Symphony, Marin Alsap, who engaged in a project to have uh, everybody rewrite the choral ode that ends Beethoven's Great Ninth Symphony that is based on a, uh, uh ode by Friedrich Schiller uh, that has been known as An die Freude is what it is in German, to, to joy, and we know it as the ode to joy. And this is one of the great matchings of text and music in the history of music. Beethoven set a romantic work uh, that is filled with German idealism and, and ecstatic sense of, of unity with creation and a uh, 18th century yearning for freedom, which was not the norm. In the 18th century, you still had uh, despotism and lack of democracy. <laughs> so Maren Alsop said, okay, enough of this Schiller guy. You know, we're sort of sick of it. So she commissioned this Baltimore rapper who goes under the name of Wordsmith to write new lyrics <laughs> uh, to the Ode to Joy. And they are worse than a Hallmark <laughs> Ode. It's filled with all of this, you know, pablum about let's fight for gender equality and, uh, you know, be diverse and let's all join hands and, and be for climate change and stuff. And it's just ridiculous. And there were others she commissioned in, in England uh, that were equally ridiculous, uh, sort of more mannered in their rhetoric. The wordsmith version for the Baltimore Symphony at least sort of, parsed a little bit uh, as you know as verse but it didn't match the music uh, Beethoven had worked very carefully with the meter of Schiller's ode to match his music and and you had this wordsmith you know trying to f cram five syllables into one note so as as just sheer musical rhyme setting it was just appalling but but to think that you're gonna have people that are going to hear, Beethoven's symphony, perhaps for the first time, and that are being denied 
the experience of hearing it as it was meant to be written. Mm. Uh, it's just ridiculous. And she, she's not licensed to do that. Uh, so, but it's all this pathetic effort at relevance. Again, a music director who does not have the language or the confidence in her heritage to make the case for new audiences to come in you don't have to rewrite it by wordsmith make the case that the pairing of beethoven and schiller is unique it's not replicable and we should be grateful for the fact that its rhetoric is sublime it's not how we write poetry today that's not a failing that's a that's a, a feature not a bug mm. you know this thing is never going to be written again schiller's not coming back Nobody's writing in that idiom of the German sublime, and that's precisely why we should be down on our knees in gratitude for this cultural moment that is long gone. And, and how about we as products of the 21st century with all its democratic banality, how about you just try and enter a very, very different aesthetic world? Mm. It's a good point. People often will say, well, why do I need to read Shakespeare? Why do, why do I need to, you know, learn about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, whatever? It's, you know, that that's totally irrelevant to me. That that guy was hundreds of years ago, or you know. And it's like, it doesn't need to necessarily be immediately relevant to, I mean, it is, it's, to be honest, it is relevant to everything right. that's going on. But, um, yeah. No, it's not. It's our, our attitude today is one of absolute narcissism. If it's not about me, if I as a female don't see myself reflected in some literature as a female, it's somehow not relevant. Or if the author is a male, I mean, this is just, it's pathetic. It is, it is, it is shallow, narrow, uh, and, and people are cutting off their human experience. We're going to die. You know, that is facing us. We have a finite number of years to try and experience the great vastness of what it is meant to be a human being. And the only way we will do that is by getting out of our pathetic narrow selves and exposing ourselves to great art. It is an escape from the self. And instead, this idea that it has to be relevant, and as you say, truly understood, of course it's relevant. It is, it is humanity's greatest expression. Uh, but, but again, students are being encouraged by their professors to say if they don't see themselves reflected down to the, the, the latest minutiae of gender identity in, in a Aeschylus, uh, uh, you know, trilogy or, or a Wordsworth poem that they are licensed to reject it. Mm. Uh, it is, it is a extraordinary betrayal of what these professors have been hired to do and that they're failing to do now. And that, that it goes again, it goes as well for symphony orchestra directors, for opera directors, for museum directors. You are all failing and you should be replaced because you have betrayed the one thing we are asking you to do, which is to curate these traditions and to teach n new generations why they should be down in their knees in gratitude before these magnificent, monumental inheritances of human sublimity and beauty.
That's very eloquently put. I wonder, I wonder whether I live in Australia. I'm American. I grew up in New York in the degree. I can tell. <laughs> um, the hat gave it away. Um, but, uh, you know, one of, one, of, one of the things I like about, I mean, this is a whole larger, I'm very grateful to be an American and have an American passport. And I still think it is an amazing country. Um, but, but one thing I appreciate about being in Australia is that a lot of these, uh, a lot of the play pretend doesn't exist here. Um, it was funny. I was in, I was in Miami last week with, um, uh, not last week. This was like a month ago, uh, with an Argentinian friend. Um, and, uh, you know, we were talking about issues and she was just like saying very blunt, but accurate. She was stating very blunt, but accurate observations. Um, and I was like, you should, you should keep your voice down. You can't, you can't say yeah. that here in America. And, and she's like, why not? <laughs> she's like it's not racist you know she goes i'm not even american she goes i'm not white you know i just say whatever i want um and so she's like you guys are so concerned with, with being called racist or being called that you know if the wall is blue call it blue <laughs> that's yeah. it um but i want you know as far as far as the assault on the arts um do we are we seeing this in other countries as well, or do you think that it's a uniquely American phenomenon? Perhaps not uniquely American. Obviously, we've seen you know great art torn down by all kinds of autocrats throughout history. But right now, in liberal Western democracies around the world, are we seeing um, this kind of assault on visual art, on music, uh, and on affiliated types of things? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Britain, the all of Great Britain is is absolutely turned inside out over this. Uh, you had uh, half of the members of the English touring uh, opera in Britain fired because they were white. Uh, you had uh, the um, Arts Award a nomination for the Scottish Opera for its production in early 2020 of uh, an opera by John Adams called Nixon in China, which had been universally lauded by critics. Uh, and then this obscure arts institution organization in uh, Britain called, the acronym is BEATS. It stands for, uh, it's, it's basically a British East Asian arts organization mm. to represent Asians. Uh, they complained that that uh, two of the Chinese characters that were cast in Nixon in China, Mao and Zhou Enlai, were played by white uh, singers, even though Nixon, Richard Nixon, this is about Richard Nixon's uh, groundbreaking visit uh, under Chairman Mao to go to China. Uh, Nixon was played by a black uh, baritone. This is typical. You know, it, it's only one way. So, so it's assumed that blacks are going to sing white roles, but if a white sings a non-white yeah. role, that's a problem. So, so beats this guy that ran it, sent out a little tweet saying, oh, this is yellow casting. Uh, and, and, you know, you can't cast whites to sing Asian roles. They're, Arts nom they withdrew from their arts nomination 
A British Labour MP went after them. They issued the most craven apology. Uh, this is happening everywhere. And uh, in the, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, one of the great world museums of all time with the greatest collection of the Dutch masters, it has uh, Rembrandt's great night guard canvas, massive canvas, but just astounding uh, Vermeer's and Franz Hall's and Rembrandt's. It has now gone around rewriting its wall texts uh, to show that somehow a, a, a Dutch broke still life, uh, you know, with gorgeous tableware and uh, peeled lemon and oysters mm. is actually all about colonialism and racism. I would say like on continental, you know, Macron to his credit, Emmanuel Macron, the, the newly reelected president of, um, of France, he has said, we're not tearing down any statues here. So don't even think about it. Yeah. You know, and they haven't gone after Voltaire and Racine and, yet. and Rousseau <laughs> yet, yet, yet. Uh, we'll see. I mean, there were the, uh, several years ago that some obscure UN agency was bitching and moaning about Dante's Inferno as, as homophobic and Islamophobic because he had some Muslim in, in one of his circles of hell. And at that time, this was back in 2012, there were various Italian academics who said, are you kidding me? This is our patrimony. You know, yeah. just shut up. Yeah. Come on. But, but, uh, you know, I'm not so sure it's not going to start happening there because when it comes to opera productions, Germany is the absolute worst. They're they're the leaders in in something called Regietheater, which is director's theater, which resets operas th in contemporary settings, kind of like the Fidelio, the the uh, Black Lives Matter Fidelio, but worse. Uh, that wrenches operas out of their original context and meaning to to set them in contemporary. Uh, modes to serve as just vehicles for the director's own adolescent political <laughs> hobby horses. So, so that's happening throughout <laughs> European opera stages. And so, I think the the more explicit race stuff will probably start happening there as well. And it should also be pointed out that you know every other artistic tradition is also racially monolithic. I mean, nobody complains that Chinese opera. Uh, is performed by Chinese people and African Nigerian drum language is, is performed by Nigerians and is not white. It's only, again, the double standards are enormous. It's only white traditions that are blamed for their demographic demographic past. Right. Well, not not to. I want to be respectful of your time here, Heather. So I just got one concluding okay. concluding question: Is you know where do we go from here? I mean, the arts, as you've said, are our cultural inheritance it's not just classical music it's 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 painting it's visual art it's opera it's 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 all of western civilization um when and there seems to be this sort of i mean you referred to this as, as classical music suicide pacts um in in one of your city journal articles and I, I think suicide pact is is a good um is an apt coining because it doesn't have to be this way we're doing this to ourselves we are tying ourselves right. into these knots so if right. a suicide in French, you know, the verb is suicider, like you do it to yourself. So we can stop. <laughs> um, but what, I mean, how, how do we stop? How do we untangle ourselves from this web? Um, and, you know, what would, what would some practical solutions be to this assault on the arts, Heather? Courage. 
conviction, principle, love, uh, a sense that you, every anybody in the arts world who you know is has a job, you've given your life to this. It's on your shoulders to keep this from going down. Every day that you're silent and the racial extortionists continue to dominate your field. And I'm talking about you, Simon Wood, head of the American the Symphony Orchestra Association. He's an absolute uh, a, a, a disgrace how he's going around tearing down. And I'm speaking to you, Classical Music Press, BBC New Yorker, Alex Ross, all of you, Anthony Tomasini, who are going around repeating this lie that classical music today is racist. You are destroying an institution that is already on the ropes. The San Antonio Symphony just recently last week declared bankruptcy. They can't keep going. This is an every year classical music is more and more marginalized by our culture. And it was not the case in the 50s and 40s. You are traitors to greatness. And anybody that has any voice has to stand up against this. Uh, and and the, every day that we're silent, uh, we can't. And you're absolutely right, Scott. The driving motive of a lot of that's going on in our society, as your Argentinian friend in Miami saw, is race. We are terrified about racial disparities. I have a book coming out called The Danger of Disparate Impact, which is that we have decided to tear down every meritocratic and behavioral standard uh, in Western culture because those standards do inevitably have a disparate impact on blacks, whether it's meritocratic hiring in medicine and STEM uh, that has a disparate impact because of the vast academic skills gap or criminal law standards of you know, laws against theft, of murder, of shooting, of gun possession, resisting arrest, uh, rioting, all of those laws neutrally uh, applied, constitutionally applied without racism, do have a disparate impact on blacks, not because the criminal justice system is racist, not because police officers are racist, but because black criminal offending is exponentially higher than that of whites. And we are terrified of that gap. And instead, we're going around, as you say, voluntarily, deliberately accusing ourselves of phantom racism rather than looking at these gaps head on mm. and being willing to say that is the problem. It's not the standards at this point. It's, it's behavior and skills and, and culture. And as long as we turn our eyes away from those behavioral determinants of disparate impact, it is all coming down every day another institution is under attack and so we have to be willing to defend this civilization and speak the truth and more people just have to get strength and courage uh because you know it, it, we're living a lie as you say the stalinist example of people going around that should know better and 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 possibly still do if they have any shred of connection to reality left and they haven't simply brainwashed themselves into the big brother lies they have got to speak up one would hope so and one one would hope yeah. that not they have to certainly but one would hope that they will um anyway heather i think you're uh, a terrific example of someone who is speaking up um i've always admired your work 
uh, which I've been following for years. And it's been um, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. 